Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. I've been really looking forward to this one. My guest today is a two-time national best-selling author of In Awe and On Fire. Uh, I first heard about him in 2015, I think it was, when we were both being published by the same author right around the same time. And I remember reading his book and his story, learning of his story, and I was so profoundly inspired, as I'm sure you will be today. I'm very excited to welcome the amazing John O'Leary to So Talk. John, welcome. Coot, when I have a chance of being on a podcast, and I'm introduced as a friend. Usually it's someone that I feel like I'm meeting for the first time. And today, when you said I'm excited to have my friend on, uh, I know that listeners aren't watching, but I started nodding my head because that's true. Like I, I, I view you as a friend. I looked up to you. I've read your work. I know your life. I know your heart. And it is an awesome honor to be on today, your show with a friend. Thank you. Yeah, I felt the same way. You know, when I was on your podcast, uh, I felt the the kinship and the spirit and the connection with you that took me by surprise, you know, and, and uh, I just was like, wow, I've, I feel so connected to this man. And so it's it's an equal honor to have you on. And I can't wait to just dive deep, man, and, and explore together today. So thank you for saying yes. Thank you for coming on. Um, I'm curious, you know, there, there might be folks that don't know your story. But I really want everyone to get to know your story. Then we can dive into some questions. Um, you've had a very interesting life, my friend. Uh, very unusual life in some ways. Um, I want, I want you to share a bit about the journey in terms of how you got to speaking, which I'm curious about. But also, you know, this experience that happened to you when you were a young man. I think it was age eight, nine, nine years old. And I'd like you to just share a bit about that. And... Yeah, just let's start there. Perfect. Tell, um, tell, tell. I'm, I'm going to begin not chronologically at the beginning, but I, I think sure. you, your first question is where I'd, I'd like to start. So speaking, what, what an unusual hobby or job to have. And it, it's both my hobby and my, my job and my passion these days. And yet I'm an unlikely speaker in so many regards. Could I, I struggled in sense of self growing up. I struggled in school academically. The, the hardest class for me was writing. The class I took last in college was called professional speaking. So I, I, I never felt called into this career. And even more shocking in some regards is I had never told anybody what happened to me as a kid for the first three decades of my life. And so I had this wild, epic journey that almost claims my life that I somehow survived and, and then never told a soul. And, and when I'm 28 years old, a, a, a girl, she was a, an 
an eight-year-old little girl and she said, Mr. O'Leary, she called my flip phone back in the day. So I flip it open and I say, hello. And she goes, Mr. O'Leary. And I said, ma'am, I think you're looking for my dad. And she responded, no, he gave me your number. Mr. O'Leary, would you speak at my school about what happened to you as a boy? And, you know, I never told anybody what happened, but for whatever reason, God, soul, spirit moved me that day to say yes. And I said yes to her, spoke that one time, looked down at my notes the entire time, never looked up at the three little girls, but that's the first. And then it led to a second and then a third. And over the last 17 years, we've been in 50 states, a couple dozen countries, a couple million people live sharing the gift of life. And so uh, it's a, it's an unlikely story in so many regards because I'm such an unlikely storyteller because I did, I did not believe in the power of my story or the power of my words. Was there a moment, I'm curious, where you started to believe in, in, in the power of the story? Was there something that shifted that? Yeah. Because I've seen, I've, seen, I've seen some videos of you speaking and it's like, wow, I'm so inspired seeing you speak. Right. And it feels like you're on fire. And so what happened? <laughs> you know, I am on fire. I'm, I'm lit up. I'm doing exactly, I think, what God had in store for me to do. It just took me a couple decades to get ready for it. We'll come back to this, the, the, the Genesis story here in a moment. But I think for me, when I began to believe that there's power in these words and in this story was maybe two years into this work, I found myself in a prison in, I believe it was in Kansas. And I get nervous in front of any audience, Coop, but I get in particularly nervous in front of those who are spending the rest of their life behind bars. I, and I mean that sincerely. Like, I, I wonder, will they connect? Will this move them? Does what I have to share have anything to do with their current lives? And so I really come in wondering, is, is, am I enough? Am I enough? And so I'm, I'm speaking to these all men and they're spending the rest of their lives in this prison. It's Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And halfway through, the lights kick off and the doors lock. And there's a hundred, all, you know, I know your listeners aren't seeing me. I weigh like 141 pounds, man. I'm six foot tall. So there's not a whole lot of muscle mass on this man. I weigh 145 pounds. There's a a chaplain in the room and a hundred felons in the room. And the doors are now locked. The lights are off. There's a siren buzzing. And I don't know what to do. And I don't know what's going to happen next. And now I'm really nervous. And from the back of the room, I hear this loud, big, large barking voice yell out, keep going. We want to hear what happens next. Wow. And so in pitch dark with this red light blinking and a siren in the background buzzing, this scared guy goes ahead and shares what happens next in the story. And then the next part of the story, and then the next part of the story. And then eventually the sirens turn off, the lights turn on, the doors open up immediately. The officials walk in and they quickly chase everybody back out to their rooms. But before they do, there's a line that forms and could I, man, I get moved. I I never share this. So here it comes guys that I did not feel worthy and did not know if I would connect with line up. And as they get ready to walk back to their cells, back to their prisons. Uh, I had the honor of giving all of these guys a hug and they gave me a hug. And it was this wonderful mm-hmm. human connection between guys that I thought might be other, you know, the other, the people who vote or look or worship or make differently than you, like the mm-hmm. other. And yet the other broke down that day and we, we were one. It was awesome. And it was in that moment I realized, man, I, maybe there is something in the story that connects with others. Mm. I'm just, I'm, I'm having this visual of you in the, uh, in the room with everything pitch black 
and the door's locked. That's kind of, that's intense. That's intense. That's really intense. Wow. That's beautiful. So take us back to age nine in the beginning. Yes. And, and a bit about that. I, I really want people to hear this part because it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's deep. Because the, then I think people can really get a sense of everything you've been through and how far you've come as well. Perfect. And I'll give you the cliff notes and then please feel free to follow up with greater yeah. clarity around anything you want to learn more about. But my upbringing was so, in some regards, so different than yours. My parents were from the same background. I live in the same, you know, in the Midwest. They spoke the same language groups. They wow. had the same passport. My, my father worked. My mother primarily stayed at home. She, she taught school a little bit, but she mainly made her living raising six children. So I had this blessed, privileged, awesome childhood. I'm one of six kids. I'd never been sick, never been to a hospital or in a hospital and then on January 17, 1987, my, my life and the life of my family changed profoundly. A, a week before this experience, I witnessed boys in my neighborhood playing with fire and gasoline. And what these little fellows would do is they, they would sprinkle some gasoline on a sidewalk and they would strike a match, stand back, throw the match on top. And the gasoline would just, oh, jam, just dance to life. It was like Harry Potter. And I looked up at these boys and I thought, if they can do it, you know, so can I, so can I. So um, that weekend, my father was at work and my mother was out with two of my sisters. It was 730 in the morning. Nobody else was awake. I walked into the garage, a mischievous, curious little fellow, bent over a can of gasoline, five gallons, tried to pour a little bit on top of a burning piece of paper and coop before the liquid even came out the fumes grabbed the flame back into the can, massive explosion, splits the metal can in two and launches the nine-year-old child 20 Whoa. feet, 20 feet against the far side of the garage, trapping me in this garage, covering me in gasoline, igniting my body in the room on fire. That, that's, that's the very first step along this journey forward. Wow. What are you thinking? What's going through your mind in that, that moment? So retrospectively, and the, the story I'm sharing is not my mom's as told to me secondhand or what I learned later on from the fire department, putting back together the scene. Th these are indelibly marked into my consciousness. I'll never forget that moment, the, the can, the moment before the liquid did not come out, the fumes did. I, I'll never forget that whole sequence. And I'll never forget being on the far side of the garage rattled. My, my ears were ringing. It's hard to even fathom, but everything around me was orange. And I don't think I knew at that moment what the orange was. Wow. All I knew for sure is I am in such big trouble here. Like I'm in pain, wow. uh, screaming, I'm trapped. I don't know if I knew for sure everything was on fire. I know for sure I did not know I was on fire, but I knew I needed help. And so I remember running from the far side back, what turns out to be the flames into the house um, through the, the kitchen, through the living room, into the front hall. And could I just, I stood on top of this, this rug praying for help. You know, we've wow. all been, been there. We've all like, oh, God, I can't do this by myself. I, I need somebody and I'm praying for help. And I don't know who's going to show up and I don't even know what's wrong with me. I just know I needed something. And, and I saw my brother, Jim, who was 17 at the time. And dude, he was the last guy I expected because he was my older brother. He'd never really done much for me before this day. And yet this was his day to change. And I view that as the promise of all of our days when we're fortunate enough to see the sunrise. Like, man, this is the day. 
fine. You put it off long enough. This is the day to change. And what my brother does is I believe nothing short of a miracle. He, he picks up a rug. It's the throw rug. You're supposed to wipe your feet on. He runs over to me. The flames are leaping three feet off of my body. He told me later on in all directions fueled by gasoline. And he just starts beating down toward me with this rug. And every single time he swung down, cute, the flames leap from me onto him. And, you know, dude, it's so much easier. just when you burn yourself to pull back, that's like human nature. Save yourself, man. Take care of you first. And if our life is about us, that is indeed what we would do. And that's what Jim would have done. And yet that day as a little boy, just 17, he realized it's about something bigger than himself. And this, this formerly self-centered, and now selfless hero of mine swings down for two minutes, saves mm-hmm. my life, beats me with that rug, wraps me in that rug, carries me outside, jumps on top of me. We roll around together. He goes back into a burning house, calls 911, and sets in motion the, the process that's ultimately going to allow a little boy who formerly had utterly no chance of surviving into a difficult life, but ultimately into a really good, blessed life. Wow. Whew. I just need to take a moment. I need to take a moment just to digest that. Because it's so visual as I'm hearing your story. From that moment, so I'm assuming you go to the hospital and there was a a process of recovery. And and tell me a bit about that. Like you survived. I mean, that's that's a miracle in and of itself. You've mentioned the miracles within your life. Those who follow you know them. They know if your father, they know if your work, and which means if they follow you, they believe in miracles. I know miracles happen every day, like at every single day. And if you don't believe me, open up your eyes just a little bit farther. Listen with your ears, open up your heart. Let's think through your mind. Let your spirit really pay attention. All day long, miracles are around us and within us. God continues to speak, it turns out. Um, I came into the hospital, Coot, and and the math in 2021, as you and I are seated here, is this. They take the percentage of the body burned. So for those listening at home, 100%, they add the age of the patient, nine, and they've just discerned mortality rate. So with all the advances of science, this little boy today would have about 109% likelihood of dying 34 plus years ago. Wow. There's just no chance. There's no chance. And, and the cool thing is, and yet people showed up. Now, my dad's grace that day, I know you, your relationship with your dad, and it's, a, it's an intriguing, beautiful story. M- mine was always very solid, very good, but I was still scared of his wrath that day because I'd burned down his house, it turns out. And he's mm-hmm. the first person outside of the staff that I see, and I'm, I'm convicted that he's going to be so mad at me when he finds out. And he walks over and he points down and he says to me, John, you know, we're in the ER, man. They haven't even started treatment yet. John, look at me when I'm talking to you. So could I look up at my dad? And then he adds, I have never been so proud of anyone in my entire life. And my mm-hmm. little buddy, you look at me when I'm talking to you today, this morning, I am proud and honored to be your dad. And then he added, John, I love you. I love you. I love you. I just love you. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's like this prodigal son experience of this, uh, this father coming out to meet me where I am offering grace that I, I, I didn't feel like I deserved, but the way he treated me that day and that moment, I think made the rest of the journey 
possible, not easy, not likely. Wow. But possible. Wow. How, how long did it take to heal? Yeah. How long was the, the, the healing process? And, and actually before that, like when, let's say after this conversation with your father, you're burned. What are you thinking? <laughs> you know, like you're a kid, like, are you thinking my life is over? Are you mad at God? Are you like, what's going, like, what's your disposition inside of yourself, your, your mental frame? So not yet. I, I did not start feeling that way until a couple of months later when they had to amputate my fingers. Un until then, the, the journey was all about looking forward, looking forward and, and not worrying at all about my, the physicality or the recovery. I, I think part of the ability to look ahead and to be bold was not only my dad, but my mom right behind dad came mom. You know, they were, they were a tag team and they were awesome. So uh, for the ladies in the room and the aunties and the moms and the sisters and the, the nieces, you guys rock. And this woman walks into this room. She takes my hand and I'm holding my hand in front of Coot right now. There are no fingers protruding from my hand. So Coot is seeing this. The hand that day was warped and bent and burned and broken. And that is a scary thing to grab onto. In particular, when you were the mother of this child. So she mm -hmm. just walked right in, man. No, no fear. Takes my hand, pats my bald head. And she says, John, I love you. I just, I love you. And I look up and I say, mom, will you knock it off? Just knock mm -hmm. it off the love. Am I going to, am I going to die today? Am I going to die? I, and you, you know, you've said beautiful things about the power of knowing that death is possible because it changes the way you show up each day. So I now recognize for the first time in my life that death is not only possible, it is likely. And my mother looks back at me and she says, John, do you want to die? Your choice. It's not mine, which is bold, Coot to give free will away to someone else when you already know the answer you wish they would choose, but you can't choose it for them. And I said to her, mom, I don't, I don't want to die. I want to live. I just want to live. And her response, and this, is, this gets to your question. Her response was good. Then take the hand of God, walk the journey with him. And you listen to me, you fight like you never fought before. This will be hard but you are not by yourself. Your father and I will be with you every step along the way. But John, you've got to want this thing. You've got to fight. And on that morning, burned and scared and dying with my mother in this room, we made a commitment, a covenant to take the hand of God and to fight forward, having a little bit of faith that mm -hmm. the miracles still do happen and that we have a part in them. Not the mm -hmm. part, but we have a part in them. You said that a, a, a few months later is when maybe some of the, the emotion, the anger hit you a little bit. And yes. so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, how did you move through that feeling, mm. you know, of, of anger, resentment? You know, I'm just imagining myself maybe feeling like a, a victim. Why is this happening to me? All, all, all those feelings. How did you deal with that? How did you move through that to come to such a, an empowered place? So you and I have the same publisher and we both know Michelle and both love her. And when they first produced my book, it's called On Fire. They had a picture of me on the front of it wearing a suit with my arms crossed, looking at the reader, like very smugly. 
uh, people, readers, if I can do it, you can too. get over your darn selves. And I, I wrote them back and I said, Hey guys, you, you got to redesign the jacket. Cause this story is not about me. That this story mm. is just about other people showing up for me as teachers, instructing and guiding and navigating a little boy who had such a limiting belief system and showing him that there was a way forward, that there was a way forward. And so I'll answer your question kind of indirectly by letting you know that the day that was my hardest day was also reformed by the end of it. So it was waking up in late February of 1987 and my dad and mom were with me every step back then. And so I look up from surgery and my, uh, my dad is, he's always with me, but this time he's with me overlooking me crying. And my dad never cried. He's a great dude, but he, he just seldom showed that kind of emotion. So I, I said kind of weakly, why, why are you crying? You know, I'm just waking up. Why are you crying? And he said, John, I'm so sorry, but um, today in surgery, they did the skin grafts, but they also recognized that they had to amputate your fingers. So I remember responding to, well, dad, well, well they grow back. And he said, oh, honey, no, they, they don't grow back. So I said, dad, you know, fingernails grow back and hair grows back. Well, my, well, my fingers grow back. And he says, no, that's not how it works. They're never going to come back. So I said to him as loudly as I could and as angrily as I was, how could you? How could you? Uh, dad, you know, all the dreams I had for myself of work and, and baseball and maybe holding a little girl's hand later on in my life, all the dreams I had, you just stole them. You just stole them from me, dad. How could you do this? And my dad just said, you know, they had to, they had to, I'm so sorry. And so we cried together and, and the, the conversation goes on from there, but there was no resolution and I was a victim and my life was over. And then later on that night, cute, it's just, you know, the, the beauty of, of people. So I don't know, you know, I don't know all, what all your listeners do, where they're tuning in from, but I'm telling you right now, you're one of these characters somewhere in these stories. Like people need you to show up actively. So one of the characters from within my story, his name was Vachi Avajan. It turns out he was my burn surgeon and the one who amputated my fingers that day. At the end of a very long day, you know, you can imagine how wiped out a guy like this is at the end of a day. He's wiped. He makes the time to come into my room. And he's the last guy I wanted to see. I don't want to see him. And he walks in and he says, John, I understand that you're angry with me, rightly so. And he talked about like why they had to do the amputation. And he used terms that I'd never heard of, like gangrene and uh, no blood flow. And it was all stupid. None of it made sense. I was just mad. And then he went on and said to me, John, you know what? You may not become a courtroom. You may not become a courtroom reporter when you get older. But I'm telling you right now, you might become an attorney or a great fair judge. He said, you may not become a baseball player. I know that was your dream. You might not be able to become a baseball player, but you can become a general manager. You, you can become a manager. You can own a baseball team, John. He said, you may not mm -hmm. want carpentry, but you can become a general contractor or one of the greatest architects that ever lived. And then he said to me, John, today I did something hard but I did not take your life. I gave it back to you. I promise you. And with that, this man leans forward and he kisses me on the forehead. This is also a non-emotional guy born in Syria, comes over to the United States. But that day he met me where I was. He showed me some emotion, gave me some encouragement and began shifting my thought pattern from being a victim to imagining in spite of obvious limitations that great things could still happen. Mm. Powerful. For those for those that might be in a place in their life 
you're on there. Maybe they're going through a hard time. 2020, 2021, been some tough years. Maybe they they feel like giving up. They're like, life is hard. It's too hard. You know, all my dreams went out the window. Things are falling apart. Relationship is imploding. Can't continue. But maybe they're listening and they're feeling like throwing everything in. Maybe life, maybe their dream, maybe the relationship and they're this close and they're hanging on by a a thread. Mm. I'm curious what advice you could give that person who, who they they just feel like giving up. Yeah. But like like, like this life thing has beat me down to the ground and it's, it's just too hard. Yes. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I, I say it with a laugh, but me too. I, you know, you hear my voice and I hope you pick up joy and sincerity and generosity and vibrancy and faithfulness in life. <laughs> and I hope if you're really listening, you pick up struggle and imperfection and uncertainty and angst and sadness. As I look into the, you know, the headlines, as I look across the street, as I look around my family, as I look at my father's Parkinson's disease, as I look at my mother's struggles and their financial woes, as I look into the reflection in the mirror and when I stare into that, I see a warped, broken, scarred image staring back at me. So mm. for those of us thinking right now, like, you know, uh, I'm struggling and I'm isolated and I'm down and I'm discouraged and I'm wondering, should I take the next right step forward? I'm telling you right now, me too. And I know Coot's story. He's been there too. So the very first thing I want you to know, listener, is you're not alone. Mm. Like you're, you're just t- totally not alone. And at the end of today, I, I will quite literally give you my number. Because if that's you right now, we are here to, to do life with you. So I, if anyone's like, man, I got no one. Well, now you got one. You, you, I'm in. So I want to make sure you recognize I, I see the value in your life. And I know God sees the value in your life. You're not here by chance. You're not. And when we recognize that, we also recognize, well, if we're not here by chance, then it probably means we're here for a purpose. And so how cool to think we can use a difficult season to discern what that purpose is. Because when we are in a season of struggle, it allows us to put away all the, all the bull. All the things that we used to think mattered, like, can I build a larger house? Can I have more commas on my check? Can I have more followers on social? All this garbage. When you truly are struggling, you distill yourself down to the things that ultimately do matter. And in this place of loss, you can ultimately begin to build your life in a way that ultimately matters. So for those of us right now looking at a clean slate, for me, it's like, oh, that's awesome. What a great chance to start again in the miracle of your life going forward. So a couple of things that I might consider doing. Number one, recognizing that you're not alone. Secondly, you may text me. I'll give you my, my number right now. This goes to my machine, but here it comes. So uh, I know this is a little random and crazy, but we're here to do life with you. I'm, I'm with you today because could invited me. And I'm with you because of God's grace. And I'm with you because a whole lot of random people showed up for me when I did not deserve it. So if ever my organization or I can support you, come on. My number through the text line is 314-202-5373. And I'll slow it down so you can type it in, but 314-202-5373. And then if you just text in your email address, that's how we can stay in touch. So we'll, we'll throw you into what's called Monday Morning Motivation. It's free, it's a gift, but it's a cool way that we can stay in touch. And so not only will I send you that, but also if you ever need anything, you can reply. So let's build a relationship. You're not alone. Your life has a value. The fact that you are here is nothing short of a miracle. 
if you're looking for a little direction on how to discern that miracle, one thing I do every day is in praise and in prayer, I ask for me and my faith, why God, the question, why me? And then I just sit there in silence and meditation, reflecting on what am I grateful for today? And sometimes that's things like hot coffee or a cold beer or four children or a wife that I love. And for some reason, completely wild about me still. So sometimes it's the stuff. Other times it's like memories or health or sunshine or trees turning or spring promise or promise of salvation, the gift of friendship, things like this that are really important that we miss sometimes. So start with gratitude as you get clear on your path forward. I would ask yourself the question, why would I choose to endure the season? Why should I choose to endure the season? And in asking that, ultimately, the answer should become, I choose to endure and ultimately thrive because. So I choose to endure and ultimately thrive because. So what's that calling on your heart as you quietly listen with your eyes shut to spirit, to God? to the whisper of what's possible. Why are you here? I choose to endure and thrive because. So years ago, when I was in a very dark place, I answered that. I choose to endure and thrive because for me, God demands it. My family deserves it. The world is starved for it. Let's roll. No excuses. <laughs> it could for me like that. That has been such a an encouragement for these years of ups and downs in my life. And the final bit of advice I would offer is to ask yourself the question at the end of each day, what more can I do? Sometimes when we struggle, it's because we spend a lot of time looking down. And if we can instead look up or out at what remains possible for you or through you in your life, what more can I do? Sometimes that's for you. Maybe you can plant a garden, reach out to a friend, begin writing love letters, pick up a new hobby, study astronomy, get deeper into your spiritual journey, reach out to an old friend, make a difference in the marketplace. But, but if every day is about doing one thing the following day that we did not do today, we begin to grow forward in life. And when we start growing, as you recognize in your own life, moving from LA into the promise of what you're doing today, all the things you've done, when you are growing, you recognize the gift that is alive and well, even still in your life. Powerful. How do we develop courage? Mm. <laughs> because, you know, we talk about, I, I know there's folks listening in that have dreams and goals and desires. And often the thing that stops us is, is the fear. Lack of confidence, the fear, am I good enough? And I see you as very courageous, John. Mm. And at least my experience of you and feeling your energy. And how did you develop courage? Thank you for saying that primarily by faking it until it became part of my DNA. When I, and I'll just be very vulnerable and I hope people laugh, but also recognize uh, them too. What, my first speech was in front of three third grade Girl Scouts. Okay, like this three. is not three. <laughs> you can do this on one hand, okay? Three third graders. They do not pay me, not even with a box of Samoas, man. So there's not a whole lot coming back my way. I practiced that speech for more than 40 hours to three third grade Girl Scouts. I looked down at my notes for the entire 11 minutes that I spoke. I never once looked up. So you can say, John, when I, when I see you today, I see a lot of courage. I had utterly no courage that day other than the, the, the whisper that said, John, just try, 
just try. And then one of the most courageous things I ever did was afterwards, when one of the, the, the ladies or gentlemen in the back of the room said, John, would you speak to my group? It's 11 people. The, one of the most courageous things I think I ever did was to say, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do even a little bit better. I'll try to do a little bit more. I'll try to learn from the experiences of what went right, what went wrong. And, and so the, the courage of, you said it even in your introduction, this idea of saying yes, my goodness, when you have the audacity and the will and take the risk of saying yes, no, and mm-hmm. it's not me. I'm not that good. I'm not that articulate. I'm not that handsome. I don't stand that straight. I don't have the bank account. I don't have the followers, but I do have the wisdom and the willpower to say yes today. That lends itself to movement. Movement leads itself to motivation and motivation ultimately breeds courage. So when, when you can go through this process of just trying, you know, alcoholics, fake it to make it. There's no shame in that. Fake it to make it. Keep surrounding yourself with people who will love you forward. That's not weakness. It is strength. Yeah, and, and, and what I'm really hearing is that you showed up. <laughs> you know, that was also a step. You, you, you said yes, and you showed up. And I think so many people don't show up. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that many times when we show up and we throw ourselves into the ocean, mm-hmm. we, we, we kind of we have to tap into an inner resource inside of us that perhaps we weren't even consciously aware was there. Yes. And so... And yeah, it's interesting. Forty hours, huh? That's that's that's, that's beautiful. Because you're you're actually one of the very few people that I've heard that from. Because I'm someone that when I give a speech or a talk, like I did a ten minute talk, I think it was uh, in August. Ten minutes. I mean, I could have winged it, and I could have just. But ten minutes. You know how ten minute talk, ten, ten minute talk is sometimes harder than an hour because you right. have to you have to. Every second has to count. And I probably prepped for 40 hours. Yes. But you know? here's the difference, Coot. You were prepping from a place and a heart that said, what can I do in these 10 minutes that would transform the lives of this audience here in August profoundly mm-hmm. and permanently? What can mm-hmm. I do for them? My preparation, and here we come again. You want a little courage, here it comes. You want a little weakness, here it also comes. They, by the way, they, it's yin and yang. They come together. My focus in the 40 hours was all about what can I do to come across looking polished? What can I do to come across where I will not be judged? What can I do so I feel in the lens of these six little eyes staring back at me from these three Girl Scouts that I've made something with my life and I have something worthy of them hearing? In other words, all 40 hours was focused on (laughs) <laughs> and for those of us struggling with courage right now, and this is, yeah. this is the truth, and I will probably have a few people turn, tune me off after I say this. Sure. Frequently, the courage is because we're all worried about us. Yeah. And what I've yeah. always... So true. So true. What I've so frequently found is when you have the courage to say, dude, yes, and not about me. I will go, and it has nothing to do with what I get. Coot's not paying me today. That group of Girl Scouts wasn't paying me. When I serve up at church or in the community, they're not paying me. Serving as a big brother, I don't get paid. We do this stuff because it's the right stuff to, to do in a world that is longing for it. So when you are striving for courage, one of the ways to pivot is instead of like, what can I get out of this? Learning a new language, taking a new job, getting more money, whatever the thing is, into what can I pour into this? And, and in flipping that question just a little bit, you will find not only courage to say yes and to show up, but the wisdom to take the next right step. So powerful, so profound. Wow. I want to ask a side question. 
since I have you here. I'm like, this is actually a bit more selfish, uh, but I want to seize the moment. In terms of speaking, the art of speaking, the art of storytelling, mm. um, what's your secret? <laughs> because as I'm listening, I'm telling you, I'm a speaker and this is just a podcast, but <laughs> I'm, feel, I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm right there as you're talking. I'm getting emotional. And, <laughs> and so I'm touched hearing you. And, mm. and so also for those that might want to be speakers, this kind of mm. side note, then I want to come back to, to something else. But what's, 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 if you could give like some of the sec- your, your secrets to, mm. if you want to be a good speaker, if you want to really be an impactful speaker, if you really want to move people at the core, because there's a lot of speakers that can speak from information and give, you know, slides and you don't really remember anything they said afterwards, sounded intelligent, but no change, no trans, no emotion, nothing. So what's your secret? And how can those of us listening cultivate the ability to move people in the way that I'm, I feel as I'm hearing you? Man, that's so good. So in our, in this room where you're recording me behind me, this is family. So grandparents, great-grandparents, wife's family, her siblings, my siblings, my children, and my wife. So that, that's why I do the work I do behind the camera, our podcast wall, including a beautiful picture of Coot, top left up there, man, gracing our office. So th- these are people throughout the world that I've had the honor of being inspired by. So I, I love this wall. And yet my favorite wall is to your right, Coot. And um, Mother Teresa, I know you spend a lot of time in India. I love the fact that this little Albanian nun makes a left-hand turn from her plan and changes the world by humbly serving the one in front of her. That's all she did. So I love her, Oscar Romero, others on that wall. The reason for this backstory is on the top right, there's a picture from Rembrandt. It's not the real Rembrandt, so don't break into my office and steal it. But it's a knockoff from Rembrandt, and it's the second to last painting he ever did called The Return of the Prodigal Son. Beautiful painting. And... We can unpack that, but I learned about this painting from a guy named Henry Nowen, who is a, a spiritual writer, he passed away maybe two decades ago. But Henry Nowen, where I learned of this painting was in The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nowen. And Nowen's the kind of author where when you read him, you almost feel sorry for him because he shares so authentically and boldly and vulnerably that you, you're almost like embarrassed he's this bold on this page. Like, oh, Henry, how could you? As you're flipping the pages Mm. to not only learn like a voyeur what happened in his life, but to learn as a leader what it means for you and yours. And and one of the quotes from Henry now, and I'll butcher this a little bit, but ultimately what what is most personal and sacred is also most universal. So what Mm. is most personal about your like, could you share to my podcast about your dad? Oh, you shared about your mom. You shared about what it was like at the bottom of the rung. And you, you shared what is most personal. And it's also what is most universal. It's why others connected with your message. Okay. So what is most personal is most universal. So what I've always tried to do as a presenter is to risk being profoundly vulnerable, not for self-help. I am not there for me to get better. I'm not there so that they can see me on Dr. Phil's couch and he can tell me, how's that working for you, John? You know, your your marriage is garbage. Your life is garbage. How's that? No, no, no. I share only because I asked myself the question before speaking, why does the audience benefit from this? 
So the messaging has to be shared authentically and passionately from a place of profound personal experience, tethered ultimately to, and it matters to them, nurses, inmates, third grade girls, CEOs, people seeking growth spiritually, people who are repulsed by spiritual. No, you want to meet them at the well of their lives. And so for me, it's vulnerably, passionately sharing personally in order to elevate those in the room. So it's always the question I always ask is what's in it for them? How do they benefit? What's in it for them? Personal. It's beautiful. I know uh, your latest book, In Awe, love the title. I'm yet to read it, but I'm about to. How do we keep awe? Mm. In a time, especially now, where honestly things seem a little bleak, no one's certain about anything, what's going on in our world, um, this thing could last another two, three years, and is there hope? And how do we keep that sense of wonder mm. and awe when the future doesn't seem so clear? And things seem a bit heavy, filled with uncertainty. So in hearing you frame it like that near the end, you said the future seems unclear. Let me, let me start with that. I spoke at a conference in Orlando, Florida. I won't get the dates right, but early November 2015. And I, I followed an economist, a brilliant economist. And this person shared specifically what was going to happen over the next three months in the economy, over the next one year, because clearly we, we can, we can identify that far out. We, we knew three years and 10 years. So like he painted a picture perfectly three months, 12 months, three years, decade. And it was all, it was, it was clear. And so we're taking notes and it's all moving. It was a Monday, all of his predictions hinged on what was happening the following day. And he already knew we all did Hillary Clinton would win the election. The entire world knew. I mean, it's very obvious. It's impossible to screw this one up. She was up by a landslide in every state, even the swing state. She was just dominating. Within 24 hours, the very world that he based his, his vision on changed. And this is not a knock political in Clinton or Trump. Just hang with me on this. When we try to forecast the future, even those most brilliant among us have no freaking clue what will happen tomorrow. So do not kid yourself that you had a clue before Omicron or Delta or COVID or before you lost that first job or the second one that you knew what was going to happen the following day. You never did. It was a lie in the first place. So let's start with that fact. You don't hold the future in your hand. God does. God does. And if you believe that, then you have to recognize the sanctity of this life. That there was some research done around the unlikelihood of you being born. And if you take what your father brought to the table, we won't have uh, the conversation right now. We'll have that after hours. And then what your mother brought to the table and you bring them together as one, the mathematical likelihood of you being born in the first place. And this is worth writing down, listeners, is less than one in 400 trillion. Brilliant. Less than one in 400 trillion, a mom and dad coming together, listening to Sweet Caroline with one of them drank too much wine and the other one, yeah, fine. I'll t- it's highly unlikely you're in the room. And yet family, family, that's us. Here we are celebrating the sanctity of life. What a gift. Act like it. Act like it. 
So I, I spend a lot less time living in yesterday, a lot less time living in tomorrow. I ultimately believe I know where it's my tomorrow, what it has in store. I, I believe in salvation. I believe in God. I believe I ultimately know where I go next. And so I don't worry about who's president. I don't worry about what the winds of change will do economically or with interest rates. I don't read the Wall Street Journal. I don't listen to NPR, PBS, or CNN or Fox. I don't follow people on social media. I find this stuff is there primarily to divide and create sense of negativity. It sells tied bleach. That's why they're yep. there. Yep. So if you don't need laundry detergent and you want to feel a little bit better about life, tune it out. And if you do that, now you've got time to read, mm. to read, to meditate to reflect, to do life with your neighbors, to go on nature walks, to be blown away at the majesty of a sunrise again, or a sunset kissing off the clouds. So you asked me, John, how do we live in awe? Start by opening your eyes. And I don't mean like, well, John, I have my eyes open. I've had them open for the entire, no, no, no. To put away the phone, put away the distractions, engage actively in the miracle of this moment. It is all you got and it is enough. Mm. Mic drop. <laughs> and I'm sorry, you know, we, we did oh. not rehearse this. These aren't, these aren't planned responses. <laughs> I don't have anything to sell people today. But th this is my heart, and it has worked well for me in my life, and I know it would work well for others in theirs. Beautiful. I, you know, I have a couple more questions, John. Um, this one, I had no idea of asking, um, it, but it keeps, it keeps nudging me, okay? So I'm going to go out on a wing. Jump off I don't know where it's going to take us, but something says, ask that. So hopefully it's okay. It's a personal question. And uh, kind of a couple of questions in one. Something's nudging me to ask. So I'm going to go with spirit. How did you meet your wife? And what is, what is or are the biggest lessons that she taught you? Some, for some reason, I'm just guided to ask you. That. Well, I don't, I don't know why. It's just, it just, I'm like, ah, let's go into something else. But it just keeps nudging me. So let's go with it. I hope you realize it was spirit. And, uh, and it was the right question, I hope. So here we go. I met my wife at my university. It's called St. Louis University, conveniently located in my hometown of St. Louis. <laughs> I was a junior. She was a freshman. I met her on a dance floor. And with a little bit of courage, fueled by liquid, I grabbed her by both hands and I took her out there and we danced away the night. Wow. And then as the night wrapped up, I realized uh, that she was far too good for me. Mm. Uh, and so I, I kind of let go of that vision for quite a while, but I still loved her and still remained her friend for a while. And after a couple of years, had the audacity to ask that, and she's stunning. I mean, she looks, she looks like a blend between Jackie Kennedy and some supermodel that graces a magazine. And yet in spite of her physical beauty, she doesn't even know she's pretty. And she's mm -hmm. got a really humble heart and a beautiful spirit. So she just, she's the package, man. She's awesome. And I asked her out and she said to me, John, you are like a brother to me. And I don't want to ruin that. And so like, mm -hmm. there, there goes that promise. And so I, I pursued this so hard and nothing changed. I pursued her hand so hard. And then after about four years of this utterly failing, something cool happened is I stopped. Mm. I stopped pursuing her for, her for my interest, whether that be intimately or sexually or to have someone on my right arm or to imagine a day where I might wear a suit and she might wear a white dress and you know, all the comfort that someone else might bring me. I stopped that nonsense and I just started loving her. 
like true, like authentically unconditional love. You read about it. I just started loving her and all pre-contents, all, all that, no, all the notions that I had before it faded and it changed the relationship. And after about a year of just loving her well, she took me into dinner as friends sometimes do. And she asked me out. And it was this moment where I recognized sometimes the very thing you seek, you have to stop pursuing for it to find you. Like sometimes mm. the very thing you drive toward success, love, whatever. Sometimes it's actually in letting go of that pursuit that that mm. very thing comes back into your life in perfect timing. So that's the story of how we began dating. But what she's taught me, and I never share this story. And so I hope, I hope it moves somebody. She taught me to see beauty where others saw ugliness. And maybe the, the best place and the best story to share around this is occasionally when you're burned, you have thick scars that cover your body. So although my face is unburned, my neck to toes is. So deep, thick scars that occasionally break down. And when they break down, infection creeps in, abscesses form, and it, like it's a mess. It causes fevers, it's ugly, it's a mess, it's smelly, it's everything bad. And it was something that I was worried, like when she got to know me, would she still embrace this aspect of me? You know, that's a fair question. Would she still embrace this? And one of the very first times that uh, she saw one, uh, I'm in bed. She recognizes I'm sick. She asked me what's going on. I lie. She knows I'm lying. So she asked me again and I explain what's happened here, you know, these scars. And so she pulls up my t-shirt and she sees the scar that is wounded and broken and filled with infection in this model of not only physical beauty, but spiritual beauty bends down and kisses the wound. And then she says, I love you. You know, it does, this doesn't matter to me. I love you. And that, that was probably 20 years ago, very, very, very early in our marriage. But uh, it is the kind of person she is. She is imperfect, as is her spouse and as are our four kids. But at her best, she's able to see beauty where so many others see only imperfection. That's what she's taught me. That I asked the question. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. John, I want to leave uh, everyone with, this is the final question I tend to ask people at the end of the conversation. Um, if you, you've shared so much today, if you were to reflect on all the lessons in your life and you were, let's say, to distill them into the three most important lessons in your life, that if you could only pass these three things to the next generation that would like, okay, these three lessons would evolve the consciousness of the next generation the most. Mm. What would the three John O'Leary keys to life, the evolutionary keys to life be? Right. So I'm going to answer the three and then I'll share with you a little sign that hung in my mother's kitchen and a little backstory. So the, the three, I was walking into a, a meeting in New York city several years ago and across from me was this big, temple. It was a, a Jewish synagogue. And there were words on the front of it that I, I didn't understand. You know, I don't read Hebrew. And so when I walked in, I asked like, what, what are those beautiful words across the street? What, what's, what's, what's imprinted into the concrete structure across the street from this door? And the gentleman who was able to read said, uh, here, here it is. He said, seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And for me, if I could impart something on my kids as I pursue success and catch the next flight and write the next book and do the next thing and run around fast through life and try to make a difference. If we could cut through all of that and say, but what did your dad really teach you? Uh, he, he sought justice. He loved mercy. 
And although some people might say he did some cool things in his life, he just, he just walked humbly with God. So I think, I think that's a cool thing to print on your building and hopefully to print through the way you show up in your life. So that's one thing I would share. And the second thing, my mother had a sign hanging up in her kitchen when we were kids. And after we lost the fire, lost our house in the first fire, she bought another copy of this. And then 17 years later, when they had, if you can imagine, Coot, a second house fire, they've been through some storms, she bought it again. And so uh, what is it that your mother hung in the kitchen? Mm-hmm. These words, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And she bought this when life was so good and my dad's business was booming and he was healthy before Parkinson's disease, before he lost the business and the finances and the home, before a child got burned, before there was suicide ideation in our life, before a divorce in our family, before a whole lot of mighty struggles came our way, before that sign itself was eradicated due to fire. She wanted us to be reminded on the top of the mountain, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Stay humble, kids. And after we lost everything, she bought it again. Because at the Mm -hmm. bottom of the well, we need to be reminded of that same truth. And maybe for those of us struggling right now with isolation and desolation and depression and anxiety, and man, it's all hard. uh, Maybe you need to buy this for your kitchen. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. pass. Beautiful. Those would be the two things I would share. Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God and recognize in the midst of this season, whether on top of the world or buried by it, this too shall pass. Amazing. John, could you assign a a simple, a short uh, homework assignment as we wrap up? (laughs) One one homework that people could do to embody and apply what you said immediately in their lives right now. One simple key, one simple step, an action step, just... Let's assign people a homework. I'm going to give you they two. Can take. I, I, I try to think a little bit outside the box. Always. So here we go. You got two. Number one is to stay in touch. My, my number is 314-202-5373. Text me. It's our organization. Your email. Hit send. And we get to do life together. So that's cool. And I'm looking forward to, um, to serving. So that's the first homework assignment. Please take me up on that. And the second one is similar with your phone still in hand. Sometimes we leave a podcast like this encouraged, I hope, or inspired or clear or motivated. And we must recognize we live in a marketplace that frequently is not. The the majority of us feel as if we are doing life by ourselves. The majority of us now, if you can imagine, that's the proper step. The majority of us deal with anxiety and sadness and angst. And then in steps you, heroes, to remind them that there is reason for hope. So my homework assignment to you is to grab your phone and to text a loved one. It could be a child, a partner, a spouse. It could be a rabbi or a pastor, a coach, a teacher, a neighbor, uh, someone who you, you text with every day or someone that it has been 20 years, you are waiting for them to apologize. And that's the one you're thinking of right now. Perfect. But I'd like you to grab your phone and open wide your heart and your mind and your soul and, and text them. And let them know in this moment why you love them. Let them know in this moment the impact that they positively made in your life. Let them know in this moment that because of them, you are far better. So rather than leaving this program thinking, wow, John O'Leary has a great life and uh, I'm, I'm glad for him. I'd like you to leave this recognizing that you have a great life, that the foundation is firm, that we are called to reach across the aisle and the street and the doorway and the bed sometimes to remind those around us that they belong here too. So that, that's the homework of some and reach out to one and let them know you love them. 
Amazing. Folks, you heard the homework assignment from John O'Leary. It's beautiful, inspiring assignment there. John, what's the best way people can find out about you and your work? I know you give us your, your number. Uh, I might be texting it myself. Uh, Come on, kid. Uh, but, but what's the best the website people can find out about you and your work? I know you have uh, two amazing books, On Fire and In Awe. I've read On Fire, folks. Uh, deeply inspiring. I, I remember my publisher at North Star, Michelle, giving me a copy. Uh, and she, I remember her asking me, what do you think of this cover? I'm like, I love the cover. Like this is a winner. And so folks read on fire if you haven't read it, uh, but what's the best website, John? Mm. Go, go to read in awe. So R E A D I N A A W E. So read in awe.com. And on that website, you can learn about on fire. You can learn about in awe. You can learn about our podcast where our most recent guest was a phenomenal human being, being named Hoot. You can learn about a, a free 21-day hope challenge. So for those of us struggling, me too, uh, we try to just give, give, give. So join us on that website, readinawe.com, and we will be ready to meet you there and love you forward. Awesome. Folks, you heard it, readinawe.com. Uh, highly encourage you to check out John's uh, books and his work and go to the website and uh, explore everything he has going on. Know that your life will be extremely blessed. John, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, you know, I just want to say something. I feel like we started off, hopefully take this in the right spirit. We started off the conversation as friends, but through this conversation personally, honestly, I feel like you've become a brother. Yeah. And so I really feel it, bro. Thank you so much for just sharing yourself and your heart. I'm moved by you. May God continue to bless you to do incredible work in the world and use you as a, as a point of inspiration for many more. Bless you. Thank you for coming on. My brother and friend, that means more than you know. So God bless. Continue boldly. And thank you again, Coot. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, this was an amazing episode. Do me a favor, everyone. Share this episode with everyone in your life that you love. I believe that many folks need to hear today's message from John O'Leary. Send me a message, Coot Blackson at cootblackson.com. Uh, let me know your key takeaway from today's episode and share this episode with all in your life that you love again. Catch you next week on Love on Soul Talk Love Now. Big hugs. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at cooplaxon.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.